You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Gospel of John, chapter 6, and we'll read verses 1 through verse 15 together. After these things, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, or Tiberias. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs which he was performing on those who were sick. Then Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. Therefore Jesus, lifting up his eyes and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread so that these may eat? This he was saying to test him, for he himself knew what he was intending to do. Philip answered him, Two hundred denarii worth of bread is not sufficient for everyone to receive a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are these for so many people? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place, so the men sat down in number, about five thousand. Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, Likewise also of the fish, as much as they wanted. When they were filled, he said to his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. So they gathered them up and filled the twelve baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves which were left over by those who had eaten. Therefore, when the people saw the sign which he had performed, they said, This is truly the prophet who is to come into the world. So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king, Withdrew there, withdrew again to the mountain by himself alone. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have expressed our worship to you and we have spoken to you in song. And now we know that that is not nearly as important as hearing you speak to us through your word. We can look to no other place to hear your voice than to the pages of written scripture. We thank you for this book. We pray, O Spirit of God, that you would make it come alive to us and open our eyes and give us illumination in it that we might, through the text of Scripture, hear the voice of our God. We believe that when your word is truly preached, your voice is truly heard. We pray that we might truly hear your voice today in the pages of Scripture, that, O Spirit of God, you would be our teacher and that your word would be our guide. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, Jesus' life was anything but relaxed and sedated. He led a very busy life always moving, always active, and you could tell from the list of things that I read to you last week that fit in between chapter 5 and 6 that took place in that year, that Jesus was constantly on the move, traveling and teaching and being with his disciples and doing miracles and being with the crowds and touring the countryside and going here and going there, constantly surrounded by people, and the crowds grew and grew and grew, and the more miracles he did, the more people gathered around, and the more people that gathered around, the more they demanded from him and wanted from him. It was a busy life, and people who really don't know any better sometimes portray Jesus as this sort of desert mystic who wandered around and laid underneath of olive trees in the shade all day long while people walked by, and he just sort of taught off the cuff and didn't really do anything. But that's not the picture that the Gospels give us of the Lord Jesus. In fact, the Gospels paint a very busy life during those three years between his baptism and his crucifixion. And there's probably no greater example of a busy day in the life of our Lord Jesus than the one that is uh, detailed for us in John 6. 
It's in John 6, it's in Mark 6, it's in Matthew chapter 14 and Luke chapter 9. And all four of those Gospels give us the account of this day. John actually tells us what happened not only on this day, but the following day as well. And it is a very busy scene. In fact, when you take into account everything that was going on and what all four Gospels tell us, you get this idea that this day was jam-packed full of stuff. It would, I believe, be the most, the, the busiest day recorded for us in the life of our Lord in the Gospels. The busiest day recorded for us. You take Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you begin to put together the picture and you get this, uh, you get this picture of Jesus being uh, hounded by the multitudes, hounded by the crowds, constantly pursued, constantly they were demanding things and expecting things of Him and following Him wherever He went. And we know from last week with the things that sort of led up to this busy day in the life of our Lord. In fact, it was so busy that it doesn't surprise me that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John all record it. I could imagine the disciples sitting around sometime after Jesus died and rose again and, and ascended into heaven sitting around and saying to themselves, do you remember that one day on the Sea of Tiberias? That was the day. I mean, Jesus had been busy for weeks ahead before that, uh, healing people and, and performing signs for the sick and teaching the people. He was busy himself. The disciples had been sent off around into the surrounding countryside to heal the sick with his authority to cast out demons and do all of the signs that Jesus was doing. And they were preaching to the people. And then when they returned, at the time that they returned, Jesus also received word that John the Baptist had been beheaded and killed by Herod Antipas. And the disciples came back. And all of them, of course, want to report to Jesus the things that God did through them in their ministry while they were away from him. Jesus had been hounded by the crowds. The Passover was near. The people were following him. And he wanted some seclusion, some time away with his disciples to to get away for a little bit of rest and relaxation. It's not to say that there was never any rest in the life of our Lord. There was, but it was rare. So we found out last week he got into the boat and sailed across the Sea of Galilee from the western shore where he was, where his disciples met him, near uh, Capernaum, over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee to a very deserted place, a lonely place, out in the middle of the desert for some seclusion. But the crowds would have none of that. The crowds went from the western shore of the Sea of Galilee all the way across to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and they were waiting for Jesus when he arrived in the boat. And he got out and continued to teach them, and Mark says he felt compassion for them and healed their sick. He saw them, the crowd, as sheep without a shepherd. And it pulled on his heartstrings. He felt compassion for the people. So he was teaching them, and he continued to do signs. And then as the day drew on, they were presented with a problem. Now last week we looked at the place that the miracle took place. We looked at the people that saw the miracle. And then we looked at the problem that was raised. As the day grew to a close and the sun was about to set, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, send the people away, disperse the crowds, so that they may go into the surrounding villages and find food to eat and lodging for the night. And Jesus said to them, you give them something to eat. And to Philip he turned and said, where can we go to buy bread for these people? And Philip said, Lord, even if we had 200 denarii, which is eight months worth of wages, we would not be able to buy food sufficient for this crowd. It was a crowd, not just of 5,000, by the way. We call this the feeding of the 5,000, but it was more than 5,000 because Matthew notes that we read earlier, Matthew notes that the 5,000 just was the number of men. And we know that there would have been women with this crowd if they were traveling down to Jerusalem. And we know that there were children because it's a child that is brought to Jesus with the five loaves and the two fish. So we know there were children present. So sort of a reasonable estimate, a reasonable number would not be just 5,000. That's just the number of the men and women. I'm sorry that you didn't get counted. 
It's nothing sexist. It's nothing prejudiced against women. That's just sort of the way of county households or heads of families in that day. Probably somewhere in the neighborhood of 15 to 20,000 people in this crowd. That would be a reasonable estimate. That's not overinflating the numbers. Those aren't Baptist numbers. Baptist numbers would be 150,000. Those aren't Baptist numbers. That would just be a reasonable number, 15 to 20,000 people in the crowd. So that was the problem. And now we look at the provision that the Lord gives. We saw the people and the place and the problem, and now the provision. Picking it up in verse 9, sorry, verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a lad here who has five barley loaves and two fish. But what are these among so many people? Now when we look at, I think it's Mark's account. It would be Mark's account because we didn't read it for the scripture reading. It is in Mark's account that we find out that after Peter, uh, sorry, after Philip says to Jesus, we have, uh, we don't have 200 denarii worth of, of bread to feed these people. And even if we had, Lord, a place to buy bread, which we don't, we don't have the money to buy bread, 200 denarii worth. Jesus said to Philip and to the disciples, how many loaves do you have? Go see. So this seems to be a response to Jesus' instruction to them to go on a, a reconnaissance mission, if you will, out into the crowd to find out what type of provision they had, even amongst the crowd. Because Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go see. Now this is not the first time we've seen Andrew in John's Gospel. We saw Andrew back in chapter 1. You may remember that back in chapter 1, with the disciples of John the Baptist, among those disciples were two disciples particularly. One of them was unnamed, and I argued that the unnamed disciple was the author of this gospel, John. The second disciple is named, and it is Andrew. We find out back in chapter 1, Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. We find out here in chapter 6, again, that Andrew is Simon Peter's brother. And Andrew was following John the Baptist when he heard John the Baptist say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And after John baptized Jesus, Andrew would have seen that. And Andrew was the one who the next day heard John the Baptist again say, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And the implication was clear, and John the, uh, uh, Andrew got it. John wanted Andrew and the other disciple and all of his disciples to follow Jesus and not him. So John chapter 1 says, From that point forward, Andrew and this other disciples, those two disciples, left John the Baptist and followed after Jesus. And do you know what the first thing that Andrew did was? He went and got his brother Peter and said to Peter, we have found the Messiah. So that's what Andrew does. The first time we see Andrew, he is bringing somebody to Jesus. The second time we see Andrew, what is he doing? He's bringing somebody to Jesus. That was Andrew's thing. He brought people to Jesus. He just brought Peter and then he brings this boy, the lad. And in the Greek, it is a, a diminutive. It's actually a double diminutive. The term for boy means it refers to a small child or a small boy. And then the form of that word actually means small as well. So it's like a small, small boy. It's like a boy which is small, but then it's a small boy. And John is emphasizing something. The boy was small. It was a small boy that Andrew found. There was something in his reconnaissance mission. He found the lad with five barley loaves and two small fish. I want you to note just for a second the provision that Jesus was given to work with. Five barley loaves and two fish. John is the only one of the gospel writers that tells us what type of loaves they were. They were barley loaves. John mentions it more than once in the passage. Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't take note of that, but John does. There was something peculiar about barley loaves. Barley loaves were considered a poor man's food. Josephus, and, and many people in that era, disdained barley loaves and uh, barley products because they considered that the coarsest, the meanest, 
the, um, the poorest of sustenances. Josephus, in his book on Jewish antiquity, says that a barley loaf was too vile for human consumption. And the Talmud, the writings of Jesus' day, said that barley was fit only for horses and donkeys. So that's what the boy brought to Jesus. But listen, that does not mean that it was not wholesome food. It just means that what was brought to Jesus was the poorest and the meanest of food. Just because something is considered food for the poor doesn't make it poor food. You understand that? You and I in our day, if somebody offered you, hey, come over to my house, I want to give you beans and rice for lunch. You would say, beans and rice, that's what you get at the food bank. That's, that's considered the basis and the meanest sustenance that you and I would eat. But I like beans and rice. You offered, if I was out in the middle of the wilderness and I didn't have anything to eat, and you offered me beans and rice, I wouldn't turn my nose up at that. I would say, that's great, I'll take beans and rice. I like beans and rice. Just because something is food for the poor doesn't mean it's poor food. That's what Jesus was given, five barley loaves. The word loaves is a little bit misleading because you may be picturing a loaf of bread. You and I have loaves in our day, but that's not how they ate bread, and that's not what that word refers to. That word refers to something more akin to a pancake-sized piece of bread, a flat piece of bread that was sort of like a pancake and about the size of a pancake. My wife makes something like it, but she doesn't use barley. She uses something much better. We call it naan. I don't know if you've ever heard, uh, ever had naan before. It has no calories. That's why we call it naan. So we can eat as much as we want without worrying about it. It's a flat bread, and she smothers it with butter and cilantro. And it is delicious. This was, it was like this, was like that, but not nearly as good. It was a flat bread like you and I would have in a pita bread or a flat loaf of bread, a thin piece of bread. Something small. Something small. Two fishes, and the word for fishes is the diminutive word of the form of the word for fish, and it means a small fish. Two small fishes. And according to the biblical dictionary, uh, or uh, dictionary of biblical languages, that's what it is, biblical dictionary, that one that I just mentioned. According to that book, this was not something, not a big fish, not even a medium-sized fish, but something what we would call a minnow or something slightly bigger than a minnow. And they would take these minnows, and when they caught them, they would salt them and they would pickle them, and then that would preserve them, and they could take them out into the desert heat, and they would eat them like snacks. Sometimes they would make uh, relish out of them. They would mince them up. They would eat them whole, by the way. They didn't. You don't skin and take the scales off of and clean out a minnow. They would just dry them out after they had pickled them or salted them, and they would eat them whole. I have uh, two brother-in-laws that lived in Japan. Actually, I have three brother-in-laws that lived in Japan. One of them is still there. Two of them have moved back to Canada. And one year, one of our brother, my brother-in-laws, Deidre's brothers, sent us a package of snack foods from Japan. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, wow, how lucky to get snack food from Japan. (laughs) Not at all, because most of it tasted like something you would dredge up off the bottom of the ocean. And apart from the seaweed chips, there was one little package of, of fish, and it was in a clear package. This they sell in the stores, like we would sell Ike and Mike's or something like that. It was a little package of minnow-sized fish, whole, and it looked like somebody had pulled them out, rolled them in salt, and put them on a dehydrator, and then put them in the package and sealed them. And this they consider snack food over there. That's what they had. That's what the boy brought to Jesus. Basically, two little something maybe a little bit bigger than a minnow, and they would eat them whole. Sometimes they would make relish out of it, out of the fish, and spread it on the bread to make the barley loaves more palatable. Or maybe the barley loaves made the fish more palatable. I don't know which it was, but they would eat them together, one as a side dish and one 
as the bread. That's what Jesus was given. So if you, if you in your mind as you've read through this have pictured a little boy coming up to Jesus with five big French bread sized loaves under one arm and two 30 pound salmon off of the other arm and offering this to Jesus, you have had entirely the wrong picture in your mind. He was brought five little pancakes, thin barley loaves, the meanest, the poorest, the cheapest of substances, and something about akin to two minnows. Now what are they going to do with that? And that's what Andrew says. What are these among so many? Oftentimes we picture Andrew coming up to Jesus and he's sort of the hero of the story as if he saw the lad with the five loaves and the two fish and said, I believe Jesus can do anything with this. And so Andrew comes up to Jesus and hands them to Jesus and says, multiply them, Lord. Here you go. You, you do it. You can feed the multitudes. But that was not Andrew's, that was not Andrew's perspective at all. Andrew came up to Jesus and he said, you have sent us out on the reconnaissance mission. Here's what we found. Five pancakes and two fish. Now, just like Philip did the numbers with the 200 denarii, eight months worth of wages to buy food for so many, we ran the numbers on this, and that's one pancake and less than half a minnow for every 1,000 men. And then Andrew says what everybody was thinking, what are these among so many? What are we going to do with this? And the attitude of Andrew is this. See, Lord, Philip was right. We don't have provision for these people. That is what Andrew has confessed. That is what Philip has confessed. And that is, and this is going to sound trite, but it's true, and we ought not overlook this. This is exactly what the Lord wanted them to recognize, that they have nothing. That's the point. All of the disciples needed to recognize that. That needed to be put out on display for everybody to see they have absolutely nothing. They had plan A, buy food for all these people. We don't have a place, and we don't have provision. Let's go to plan B, search through the people and see what it is that they might have. Well, we have done that, and we have gone through the crowd, and there's nobody here driving a Snyder's bread truck. We have nothing. All we have is just these five loaves. Lord, we, we have five pieces of bread. We need something like, if you've got 20,000 people, and each person eats three or four or maybe five of those little pancake things, we need something akin to 100,000 of these to feed these people. And we have two minnows. We need a quarter million of these. All we have is this and this. Now everybody's on the same page. That's right. We have nothing. There, there's no provision. We have nothing, no place to buy food, nothing to buy food with, and we have nobody with us who has food for this crowd. That's what the Lord wanted to hear. That's what the disciples, that's the conclusion that the disciples needed to come to. That is the same thing where the Lord, that is the same place the Lord wants each one of us all the time to recognize I have nothing. In fact, you can't even be saved unless you're willing to confess that. You realize that? As long as you think you have enough righteousness to get you into heaven, you cannot be saved. You cannot be saved until you come to the point of saying, I have nothing. I have no righteousness of my own, and I have no means of acquiring righteousness. I can't earn it. I can't buy it. I can't receive it from another normal human being. I can't generate it out of myself. I need righteousness, and I can't acquire it, and I do not possess it. And that's where you have to be to be saved. To say, Lord, I need your righteousness in order to stand before a just and holy God. I need a righteousness that is not my own. In order to serve the Lord, I really truly need a strength that is not my own. In order to earn any kind of eternal reward, I truly need an indwelling spirit and a power and an ability and a spiritual gift and a strength that is not my own. And that's where the Lord wants each of one of his disciples. To come to the place of saying, we do not have it. We cannot provide it. Now what did they expect the Lord to say? Let me back up for just a second. They had come to Jesus and said, Lord, send away the crowd, disperse the crowd, 
so that they can go find lodging and find food. Jesus said to them, you feed them. Then he turned to Philip and said, where can we buy food? Lord, we have no place to buy food. We have no provision to buy food. Go see how many loaves you have. And they bring that back. All we have is five and two. What are they expecting the Lord to say? You're right. Let's disperse the crowd. Okay, everybody, it's time to go home. Everybody leave. Go find provision. Go find a place to stay. And what does the Lord say? Have them sit down. That's not what the disciples were expecting him to hear. The disciples, I believe, were expecting to hear Jesus say something like, all right, we have nothing. We've exhausted our options. Disperse the crowd. Have him sit down. If I'm one of the disciples, I'm saying to somebody else, I'm leaning over to Peter and saying, did he not just hear what we said? We have nothing to feed them. Have them sit down. What is he going to do? So look at verse 11. Or verse 10. Jesus said, have the people sit down. And now there was much grass in that place. So the men sat down in number, about 5,000. There's just the men that are numbered again. So we're talking of a crowd of 15, upwards of 20,000 people. John mentions that there was much green grass in that place. It was a desolate place. They're not near a town. There's no stores there. There's no villages there. So they're out in the middle of the wilderness, but there's a lot of green grass there, which tells us it was the spring of the year. We found out in verse 4 the Passover was near. So this is before that that, uh, Palestinian sun had a chance to scorch all of the green grass and turn it into brown grass. So there's grass there, and then they do what what you would expect them to do, they sit down. And the word, have them sit down, actually means to recline. And it was the word used to recline and eat. So oftentimes at a formal dinner, they would not sit at a table like you and I would, but they would recline upwards toward the table, sometimes laying on their side. So you can picture this is basically a large picnic. What happens when you have a green place to sit down and you're going to sit down and eat? You sit down on the grass or sometimes you lay down on the grass and you recline. That's the idea here. Now, does this picture sound familiar to you at all? Does picture sound familiar to you? Let me describe it in slightly different terms, and then I'll ask you if this sounds familiar. The crowd came to him, and Jesus, the shepherd, saw them and felt compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he showed them mercy and kindness by healing their sick and doing them good. And then he made them to lie down in a green pasture out in a deserted place, and he prepared a table for them in the wilderness, and truly we can say that their cup runneth over. Now, does that sound familiar? It's Psalm 23, isn't it? The similarities are striking. And I I just mentioned that. Go home, read John 6, read Psalm 23. And then we find out in John chapter 10 that Jesus is the good shepherd, right? He is the shepherd spoken of in Psalm 23. And here he's doing for his people what we would expect a shepherd to do, prepare a table before them out in the middle of the wilderness, out of nothing. In number, about 5,000 people. He had them sat down, I think, because there's practical reasons for having them sit down. Not only so that everybody would be able to see Jesus and have a, have a front row seat, as it were, to this miracle, but also this would make distribution of food easier. It would avoid people rushing as disciples. People are sitting down expecting to be fed, and then they would see what Jesus is doing. They would remain seated. There would lack of confusion. It would make distributing the food easier. They're sitting down, Mark says, in Mark 6, verse 38, in groups of 50s and groups of 100. That makes distributing the food a lot easier. There's an orderly structure here that Jesus is instituting. Had them sit down in groups of 50 or 100. Then verse 10 or 11 says, Jesus then took the loaves, and having given thanks, he distributed to those who were seated, likewise of the fish, as much as they wanted. The other Gospels mention that Jesus did the distributing through his disciples. 
So the disciples actually took the food and began to distribute it to the crowds. You would say, if it's getting close to evening, how do 12 men feed 20,000 people? Well, probably, practically, they would have gone to each group and, and offered a selection of food, brought the food to the group, and there would have been somebody in the group who helped distribute it to those people. This would have been able to happen very quickly. You have 12 people who are using other people to help distribute the food. Why use the disciples to distribute the food? Jesus uses a very ordinary means. I mean, if he can create food out of nothing in front of him, he can certainly create food out of nothing in front of the people that are going to eat it, right? But he doesn't distribute the food supernaturally. He uses a very natural, ordinary means of of manifesting the miracle so the disciples could see this. The disciples were standing there able to see food created out of thin air right in front of them. And so the disciples distributed the food to the people. And John, look at the abundance of it. He says that they took as much as they wanted. And when they were filled, he said to his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing will be lost. Why gather up the leftover fragments? I mean, why not feed the birds or just let it sit there? Jesus was concerned that nothing be lost. There's preciousness to this food. And just because he is providing abundantly doesn't mean that wastefulness is okay. There's no need to waste the abundant provision. Abundant provision doesn't mean that we are free to be wasteful. And that's one lesson that we can learn here. Jesus wants the disciples and everybody now to see the abundance of this provision. So the disciples went out and they gathered up all the fragments. There were people there who took more than they needed. Their eyes, as it were, were bigger than their stomachs, right? If you have kids, you know this. Grab a plate, keep it all the way to the top with everything so that there's nothing left for anybody else at the end of the line at the, at the potluck. Sit down, eat two bites, and then say, I'm full. That's what kids do. People will take more than they eat. People in this group took more than they eat. I'm convinced it was all children that did this. None of the adults took more than they needed. This was all the children took more than they needed. Jesus knew that. He didn't want any to go to waste. So he sent the disciples out, and they gathered up 12 baskets. Now, why 12 baskets? People who have no clue how to interpret Scripture love to jump on numbers like this and say, well, see, the baskets are symbolic of this, and the 12 represents this and that, and the the 12 baskets actually represents the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel, and the bread represents salvation given to the Gentiles, which is the crowd. And so what we find here is I'm not even sure. Why 12 baskets? It doesn't represent 12 tribes of Israel. doesn't represent the 12 disciples. It doesn't represent 12 hours in a work day or anything like that. Why 12? How many disciples were there? Twelve. Each one grabbed a basket, filled it up with leftovers, and brought it to Jesus. And so there were twelve baskets full. That is probably fifty or sixty or seventy times the provision that Jesus started with. And I told you before that we learn something about our Lord from every miracle that He performs. Every sign tells us something about His nature, His character, His person, His being. What does this miracle tell us about the Lord? First, we have a lesson here about his compassion. We see his compassion. He had compassion for the multitudes, and we saw last week that these people were coming to him only for the signs, not for his, not for what he really offered them, which was himself. He was offering deliverance from their sin. They wanted deliverance from Rome. And they were coming to him just because they saw the signs, not because they truly loved him, not because they truly believed in him, not because they were truly saved. And Jesus is going to give them a discourse later on that's going to demonstrate these people were not truly saved at all. They were sign watchers. They saw the signs. They came to him for that reason. And yet, in spite of the fact that he knew they would turn on him, that he knew that they would abandon him the very next day, he knew the condition of their hearts, he still felt compassion on them. And he healed their sick, and he taught them, and he provided something for them, even though he knew that it would not create in them true, genuine, saving faith. This is compassion. We also see here his selflessness. 
This was a busy day. He was exhausted. The disciples were exhausted. He sought some solitude and some away time with his disciples, went across the Sea of Galilee, crossed the lake, a couple hours in a boat to the other side, gets to the other side, and there are the people. He doesn't send them away. He doesn't disperse them. Even after a whole day of teaching and miracles and healings and all the signs that he was performing and everything that he was doing, the constant demand of the crowd, when evening came, he didn't disperse them. He could have just said, go home. Go find something to eat. But he didn't. Instead, we see him doing what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 to consider the interests of other, others as more important than themselves. That, that is the example of Jesus. We see his selflessness, that he served and loved the people even though he had been doing that all day long and the demands were what we would consider to be enormous. Third, we notice here the absolute creative power of Jesus. Don't miss this. He is creating bread and fish out of nothing. At what point did the miracle take place? Did the miracle take place in the distribution? Matthew seems to suggest that Jesus kept on giving his disciples food. It seems that the miracle is taking place as Jesus is breaking the bread and and distributing the fish that they are multiplying before him as he stands there and distributes this to the 12 disciples to feed 20,000 people. That's when the miracle happened. And right here before his disciples and before the people, he is multiplying food, creating, as it were, out of nothing. Now, he could have created out of stones. He chose to use the bread and the fish that were already there to multiply that. He's basically creating food where food did not exist. This is his creative power. In an instant, he is creating these things. Notice it didn't take him millions of years to create this. Didn't take him that, did it? How long did it take him to create? Instantly. If Jesus can create bread and fish instantly out of nothing... It poses me no problem at all to think that he might create, say, stars and plants and planets and animals and man out of nothing instantaneously, relatively a short period of time ago, in six literal 24-hour days, or seven if you count the day of rest. This is his creative power that is on display. This demonstrates that he is the Son of God. The fourth thing that we learn, his creation, uh, or his creative power, and the fourth one is his generosity. He is giving to them lavishly. It's over and above what he they would need. He doesn't just give to them a little bit. He could have given them a little bit, but he gives them more than they need, over and abundantly beyond what they need, so much so that they were able to take all that they wanted and bring it in, and he provides all of that, and God gives lavishly. He gives to us physically lavishly, and he gives to us spiritual blessings lavishly. How many people sitting here can honestly say that God has provided for your needs, but only your needs? Anybody? No, you and I have vehicles that we drove in here that we don't need. We have entertainment we don't need, clothes we don't need, shoes we don't need, we eat food that we don't need. He provides for us not just our needs, but abundantly beyond all that we could ask or even think, beyond what we need. He is a lavish and cheerful and gracious and abundant, generous giver. That is God's nature, and that is what Jesus does here. He provides not just what they need, but beyond what they need. Now, before we leave this text, I want to tell you that the skeptics and atheists and people who don't like to admit to miracles in the Bible have a couple of different ways that they... They explain away the things that are here in order to show that no miracle took place. First, they will say, this is one thing that they use to explain away the miracle. They say, this was a communion service. So what Jesus did is he distributed the bread and the fish to people, and it was just a little bit because we're going to have communion, but we're not going to have a big plate set before us. We're just going to have a little piece. So this is what Jesus was doing. He was distributing to each person just a little piece. Everybody got just a little bit. This is just a communion service. That's all that's going on here. Well, a communion service for 20,000 people is going to take more than five pancakes and two minnows. It's not a communion service. And people point to what's later on in the chapter where Jesus said, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And they say, see, that's a reference there to communion. No, it's not. This is not a primitive communion service. Fish have no place in a communion service. 
This is not a communion service. Second, people will say that this was really a miracle of the heart. You see, the little lad came forward, and the little lad presented his lunch and gave it to Jesus, hoping Jesus would be able to do something with that. And he was providing this to Jesus, and so that inspired in the hearts of everybody else who would pack their lunch to break their lunch out and share it with everybody so everybody had had what they needed. So this is really a miracle of generosity happening in people's hearts where everybody's generosity was sparked and they provided all that was needed. No food was created. All that happened was people became very generous at the example of the young lad. Some things are just too stupid to even respond to. That is not what's being described here at all, is it? This is a genuine bona fide miracle. It's the most public miracle that Jesus did. You and I can marvel over the miracle, but let's not forget this. One last thing. It is no more difficult for him to create a star than it is for him to create a loaf of bread. And he does a creative act here out of nothing with no effort whatsoever. This did not exhaust his power, his resources to do this. He is the infinite God, and it is easy for him to say, let there be bread, as there is for him to say, let there be a host of universes, and to speak all of them into existence. And just because Jesus provided here in a very miraculous, supernatural, extraordinary way should remind us that really every provision that we receive, even though it might be very natural, very ordinary way, is really an amazing manifestation of the care and providence of God in itself. Is it any more or less miraculous that you can throw a seed into the ground and that that seed will sprout and will grow up and will take in sunshine and dirt and water, all of which God provides, and it will grow and mature and it will produce something that you and I can eat? We call that natural means, providential means, something ordinary. It's only ordinary because we're used to it. It's really quite extraordinary, isn't it? It's quite an amazing provision that God does for us all the time. We marvel over the miracle and we say, God did this, Jesus did this in a very supernatural, extraordinary way, but you and I should not forget that every time we are provided for, every bite that we eat comes to us, though we may consider it ordinary, it is at the same time very extraordinary provision that God gives to us. Lavishly, and beyond what we need. And we praise Him for it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank You that You do provide for us. This miracle is evidence of Your Son's creative ability and evidence that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that by believing we might have life in His name. Thank You for providing what You demand of us, that is our the righteousness that is necessary to see You. Thank You that You provide for us through our through very ordinary means and very natural means all of our daily provision. But thank you that you demonstrate to us that you are able to provide through extraordinary and supernatural means as well. You are truly worthy of our praise and our honor. And we glorify and honor you because you are our God. And we thank you that you have drawn us and, and, and saved us by your grace. Thank you for the kindness that you have shown. Thank you for your goodness. And thank you for this reminder of your extraordinary provision for all that we need and all that we lack. We truly are needy and lacking people. We lack everything and we need everything and we have received nothing that does not come from your hand. And so we thank you for them. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting kootenaichurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.